SFS. Rain screen white paper. The effects of thicker insulation in rain screen cladding subframe systems. We strive for continuous improvement and innovation, always in close collaboration with our customers, colleagues and suppliers. We want to be successful together, improve all the time, see where the technological limits are and drive them forward. SFS creates value with advanced fixing and rain screen subframe systems for the building envelope. As the leading specialist in this application, we offer the highest possible expertise. Together with our partners, we invent new products and services for our shared success. Building envelope specification is in a state of flux. Multiple areas of legislation and regulation are under seemingly constant review, and it's a situation that isn't going to change in the immediate future. Energy efficiency standards in national building regulations have been mapped out. For example, the future homes and building standards will be introduced just a few years after the implementation of Part L2021. The industry has little time to get used to one before the other is introduced. Meanwhile, the construction industry continues to grapple with the effects of the fire at Grenfell Tower. Changes made in the immediate aftermath of the fire are still being adapted to, and some elements of the legislation still being clarified. Uncertainty remains over the intent or exact application of certain requirements, leading to further uncertainty over what products can be used where. There is a fundamental need to address the issue of performance gaps. How do we ensure that the thermal and fire performance of buildings intended at design stage is realized in the completed building? Alongside the issue of whether buildings perform, a significant aspect of building envelope specification is almost completely unlegislated and unregulated. National building regulations typically only focus on the operational energy use and carbon emissions of buildings. Even in the UK, a country with a legally binding target to achieve net zero carbon emissions, embodied carbon is unregulated. Many within the construction industry want to do something about reducing the embodied carbon of buildings as well as the operational carbon clients may ask for it. Specifiers and contractors may have signed up to the declare movements set up by the construction industry. The desire to reduce the consumption of raw materials and natural resources, and to help tackle the climate and biodiversity emergencies, is prevalent throughout the industry. But, with no formal regulatory requirements around embodied carbon, efforts to take action risk being unfocused and less effective than possible. As a result, there is something of a contradiction inherent in specification as things currently stand. Thermal and fire regulations require better performance. In itself, this is enough to drive higher performance building envelope solutions, usually requiring thicker insulation layers and bigger subframe assemblies. At the same time, there is a noticeable shift towards a mindset of performance over compliance. This recognizes that building regulations are only a minimum standard and that complying with them doesn't necessarily guarantee a building will perform as intended or be fit for the future. This means gaining even more performance from the building envelope. However, product performance must not be achieved at the expense of unreasonable environmental impact. High-performance products must also be responsible products. Construction product manufacturers have a role to play in this through offering new and innovative products that will achieve safer buildings that have a lower environmental impact. Where, though, is the right balance in satisfying all of these competing requirements, expectations and individual values? Taken in isolation, 
Each issue can be seen as black and white. But when a project brings all of the issues together, then the way they overlap soon introduces gray areas. It is in these areas that difficult specification decisions must usually be taken. To produce better building envelopes means thinking about the building envelope as a complete system. And that is what this podcast is about. It looks at how everything interacts, so that it's possible to understand why changing X in the specification might make Y happen. It offers a route by which to achieve the best, rather than the minimum, without resulting in unsustainable increases in insulation thicknesses, rain screen subframe designs, and building footprints. In 2021, SFS published a white paper introducing the fundamentals of thermal performance in rain screen walls. It looks at the following. Drivers for better thermal performance in external walls. How external wall U-values are calculated and the effect of rain screen subframes on those calculations. How rain screen subframes can be specified to deliver better thermal performance and avoid performance gaps. The document effectively sets the scene for the themes discussed in this podcast you are now listening to and may be a useful primer for listeners less familiar with rain screen subframe system design. To download the white paper, visit www.uk.sfs.com In recognition of the fact that building envelope specifications must balance multiple competing demands, SFS has also published a white paper looking at how to achieve robust specifications. The document addresses the following questions. Why doesn't early engagement with consultants and experts happen more often? How is a robust specification defined? And how can it help to reduce performance gaps? What does robust specification look like across different areas of building design and performance? Heat energy transfer through the building envelope is only one part of external wall performance. However, it's hard to argue against it being the most significant aspect, especially in terms of establishing a building's footprint. That's because a wall's thermal efficiency is heavily influenced by the thickness and performance of the insulation layer within the buildup. And that, with the primary structure, ultimately determines the overall thickness of the wall. In a rain screen wall, the insulation and subframe form a kind of symbiotic relation, which has its own implications in terms of the external wall thickness. The thermal bridging effect, or increased localized heat loss, Due to the subframe system penetrating the insulation layer means the insulation layer has to be thicker to compensate. The knock-on effect of that is a subframe with more and longer brackets to accommodate the extra insulation and maintain the required air gap behind the cladding. In turn, an increased frequency of brackets means a greater thermal bridging effect and the cycle repeats. The end result is a wall that keeps increasing in thickness with no corresponding improvement in performance. In the context of designers and specifiers looking to achieve the best thermal performance from a wall, rather than the minimum compliance, this cycle of knock-on effects has obvious implications. It is one thing to start out with the intent of going beyond minimum standards. Whatever the driver for it might be, client pressure, personal values, meeting a specific standard, etc. But to ensure that intent is achieved in reality, the initial building design should be set out with a realistic idea of the likely wall thickness. If the aim of this podcast is to provide a roadmap, then this can be seen as the starting point of the journey. In our experience, though, 
Establishing a realistic wall thickness at an early stage is only achieved in a minority of projects. When the initial architectural concept is established, we typically encounter the following three situations. 1. The design concept is established but the detail is left to others. This can be generalized as the architect knows what they want the building to look like, but the detail is left to others. What thermal performance the wall should achieve and how the wall should achieve it are not dealt with until a later design stage. Liability has a significant role to play in this. 2. The design concept and performance target are established together. These are the projects where there is a target to hit, and the importance of hitting it is well understood. The design team engages expertise at an early stage and uses it to help flesh out the concept. There's a very good idea of how the wall will be built up, as well as what it will look like. 3. Some work is done to understand the impact of performance targets. In these cases, the design team pushes to achieve a target, but only to a particular point. They are unlikely to extensively engage with other parties for project-specific advice. They might seek some limited guidance or potentially rely on previous specification to help establish a likely wall thickness. Frequent changes of regulation, as we are seeing with the rapid move from Part L 2021 to the future homes slash buildings standards in England, combined with increasing awareness and pressure to achieve better environmental goals, means projects in the first and third categories are at greater risk of missing their targets. They could even be risking regulatory non-compliance. A lack of early engagement and a reluctance to specify a solution creates greater uncertainty and risk for the project later on. It also drives up project costs. In 2018, the UK reached a milestone of 1,000 projects being certified to the Passive House Standard. At the time, the Passive House Trust reported that at least a similar number again were in the pipeline. The landmark was seen as representing a real surge in interest for the standard, with the first project in the UK having only been certified in 2009. The world's first Passive House, built in Germany, has now been occupied for more than a quarter of a century. Another global landmark came in 2015, with every continent having at least one Passive House certified building. The attractions of the standard, with its focus on thermal comfort, energy efficiency and good indoor air quality, are clear. It is little surprise that the standard has formed the backbone of local building policies around the world. In 2015, Brussels in Belgium enacted an exemplary buildings program that made the standard mandatory for all new construction. The following year, New York City introduced legislation that set high-performance targets for new buildings, with the Passive House standard being one route to compliance. Some argue that UK building regulations should be based on the standard. Achieving the Passive House standard requires very high levels of quality control to ensure that the designed performance is achieved. To support specifiers in making confident decisions when comparing and choosing products, manufacturers can obtain certification for passive house components. The UK may have reached the landmark of 1,000 certified projects and be on its way to 2,000, but London alone has some 3.6 million dwellings, and so, in that context, the standard remains relatively niche even though interest is undoubtedly growing.
Obtaining full passive house certification requires significant commitment and a change in approach and even attitude. Compared to traditional UK construction, we are therefore starting to see a trend where designers and specifiers claim to be working to passive house principles or they select certified components. In building envelopes, for example, designers might claim they are achieving a passive house U-value. This is the perfect illustration of aiming for the best rather than the minimum, but without committing to complete certification. In reality, there is no such thing as a specific passive house U-value. U-values remain project-specific, even in passive house. However, projects are characterized by low U-values in order to meet the low energy and thermal comfort aspects of the standard. The passive house standard delivers a lot more than simply low U-values. High levels of airtightness and controlled mechanical ventilation are also part of a typical specification. Attaching the word passive house might be seen as a badge of reassurance, but it risks being misleading unless it is part of a coherent strategy from the early stages of a project. Selecting a passive house certified component could form part of that coherent strategy, but only if there is a clear end goal. A project will not be designed to the passive house standard through the selection of certified components alone. The standard can be achieved in buildings of all types. Projects like the Winthrop Center in Boston, USA show that a facade can be specified and constructed as part of fully passive house standard building fabric. For now though, it is not the norm, making it essential to engage with manufacturers and understand how certified components can help achieve better building envelope specifications, even if full passive house certification is not the end goal. Recent years have seen a substantial shift in specifying for fire performance. In reality, fire now has as much, if not more bearing on the external wall than thermal performance. The question of how can we achieve the target U-value is more likely to be phrased as how can we achieve the target U-value using non-combustible materials. Following the Grenfell Tower fire, changes made to national building regulations in the UK continue to focus on building height. The revisions to Regulation 7 in England, for example, referred to relevant buildings with a threshold height of 18 meters retained. In these relevant buildings, the need to use non-combustible materials, apart from components defined as exempt, is a definitive requirement. In Scotland, however, a measure of 11 meters is used. These height thresholds can seem arbitrary, especially when countries as close as England and Scotland have different requirements with obvious explanation as to why. Alongside that, specifiers are looking to avoid liability and satisfy building insurers. Fee sod fires are an issue around the world. Anytime one occurs it puts further pressure on designers, specifiers and regulators to do better. Combine that with the local issues described previously, and it is little wonder that specifiers are re-evaluating how they meet the regulatory requirements that a building shall adequately resist the spread of fire over the walls and from one building to another. When considering the fire performance of a building envelope, faults often turn first to the cladding panels and the thermal insulation behind them. Cladding panels are not included in the heat loss calculations for the external wall. The ventilated cavity directly behind the cladding is classed as the outside air in U-value calculations, so there is no need to consider the panel's thermal conductivity or resistance. 
What cladding does play a part in is how many brackets may be needed per square meter of phi sod. We've explored how brackets are getting longer, necessitating more of them to compensate for the cantilever force or lever arm. To a lesser extent, the weight of the panels also impacts on the load bearing of the subframe and can influence whether more brackets are needed. More brackets means more point thermal heat loss, which has to be compensated for with thicker insulation, which requires longer brackets. And the cycle happens again. The move away from lightweight, combustible forms of insulation has played its own part. Denser, heavier mineral wool insulation products offer the non-combustibility that designers, specifiers, clients and insurers are increasingly looking for. The generic term mineral wool encompasses glass mineral wool and stone-slash-rock mineral wool. Both have a higher thermal conductivity and the lightweight phenolic and PIR insulation boards that were being specified previously. That change alone requires thicker insulation to achieve equivalent U-values, before any change in cladding specification is also factored in. Beyond the cladding and insulation used in the building envelope, there are a host of other components that must also meet the updated fire safety requirements. Earlier, we mentioned the updates made to Regulation 7 of the building regulations. The addition of Paragraph 2 required that materials which become part of an external wall or specified attachment of a relevant building are of a minimum European classification A2S1, D0 or A1 classified in accordance with BSEN 13501-12018. The update also included a new paragraph 3, which lists items and components that are exempt from the requirements of paragraph 2. The list includes items such as fire-stopping materials, membranes, seals, gaskets and fixings, and thermal brake materials required to meet the requirements of part L. In keeping with this podcast's theme of specifiers looking to go beyond the minimum, a trend is emerging of wanting to achieve non-combustibility, even in exempt components. This is driving developments in product innovation across different types of components. But, in reality, it risks being more of a distraction than a genuine improvement in safety. It's unlikely that external wall buildups will achieve complete non-combustibility without potentially compromising some other aspect of the building envelope's performance. A metal rain screen subframe is inherently non-combustible and is combined with non-combustible insulation. However, a discussion then arises about the combustibility of thermal brake material or of a gasket. These are essential to achieving a buildable wall buildup that doesn't fall victim to the cycle of thicker insulation needing a bigger subframe, etc. Yet the end goal is lost sight of, through the focus on overachieving in terms of fire safety. A welcome development when it comes to fire safety has been the removal of desktop studies. It's no longer possible to have a fire test result for a specific buildup assessed by a third party with the aim of an alternative specification being declared as compliant. This has resulted in more large-scale fire testing of wall buildups. Onerous as such a development may be, it is the only way to ensure that tested buildups are constructed on site. If a proposed building envelope specification doesn't have a test report, that carries a time and cost implication for the project. This demonstrates the importance of having confidence that a buildup can perform thermally and structurally should large-scale testing be required.
It also highlights the need for working with trusted partners who can help you to establish the right build-up in the first instance and then support its construction on-site in accordance with the tested system. We saw one project where the existing cladding was being removed for replacement by a new system. When the existing cladding was removed, the substrate was found to be different to what had been assumed and therefore not in accordance with the fire test report for the system. The main contractor had a new test carried out to reflect the use of the same system but with a different substrate. As a result, the project was delayed by a year. The removal of unsafe cladding and insulation systems from existing buildings in the UK has been an ongoing issue. People have faced having to pay thousands for recladding works in order to make their buildings safe through no fault of their own. And in situations where work has failed to progress, those same people have seen their properties become unsellable or unlettable. Many of these buildings are having systems stripped off them that featured lightweight, combustible insulation boards of a particular thickness. Successful remedial work requires a new system that could potentially feature up to twice the thickness of insulation in order for it to be non-combustible and to an appropriate thermal standard. In these situations, it is not just the U-value of the building envelope that is in question. Installing a substantially thicker system has an effect on window reveals and the position of windows and doors within the envelope. Not only was the building footprint not designed to accommodate that thickness of system, there is the question of how junctions with floors and roofs are affected. In other words, there is an impact on the performance of the complete building fabric. Such work needs to be assessed and planned properly with the correct balance of performance struck to avoid negative unintended consequences in the future. Engaging with the right expertise, including system manufacturers, is essential for recladding to be fire-safe without compromising other areas, like thermal and load-bearing performance. We have looked in detail at the thermal performance of building envelopes and ways in which designers and specifiers are seeking to achieve lower U-values. We've also examined how requirements and expectations around fire safety are driving changes in wall buildups and how they interact with thermal performance targets. Thermal and fire are just two aspects of building envelope performance, albeit two significant ones. Even in looking at how those two interact with one another, it's clear that pursuing better performance from one at the expense of the other is not viable. It's important that specifications are balanced and optimized where possible to achieve the best all-round performance. For example, if a project pursues a fully non-combustible building envelope, even though regulations don't require it, components that could help achieve better thermal performance might be ruled out. A recurring theme of this podcast has been how pursuing the best rather than the minimum often has the consequence of changing the brackets that form the rain screen subframe. Subframes must be capable of dealing with dynamic wind loads that act on the facade and which increase with building height. As brackets become longer, their self-weight increases and exerts a greater lever arm force in addition to the static loads of the chosen cladding. Longer brackets are weaker, so more brackets are required to ensure load-bearing performance. All of this load is carried back to the primary structure slash substrate to which the subframe is fixed. Here arises another issue because the fixing's pull-out strength with that substrate is a limiting factor on the load that any single bracket can impose. Masonry substrates, for example, 
are relatively weak, so as loads on brackets and their fixings increase, the number of brackets per square meter must again increase to compensate. Balancing increased loads and forces is important to an optimized specification. The aim should be the most efficient arrangement of brackets and fixings that are capable of bearing the imposed loads, without compromising the thermal performance of the building envelope, and while ensuring fire safety requirements are met. In the rest of this podcast, we'll look at other considerations that contribute to this all-important balance. Earlier, we described how different projects see different levels of technical design carried out in their early stages. When a design concept is established and there is a clear direction for how the building should look, that has a significant impact on the technical design of the wall build-up. But if the technical design isn't tackled at the same time, then it can have a big knock-on effect for meeting performance criteria later. Previously, we talked about the impact that heavier cladding can have on subframe components. What we are talking about here, therefore, is compromise. Specifying a lighter cladding could reduce the load on the subframe system. That, in turn, would decrease the size of brackets needed and therefore mean a thinner insulation layer could be used to achieve the same overall U-value. Will the designer accept a lighter cladding panel, however? Unlike the technical performance of the wall, the cladding is a component that is decided upon early as part of ensuring the building achieves the intended aesthetic and is acceptable in its proposed location. It's not uncommon that architects and designers will insist on using their preferred cladding, even if technical design is being considered at the same time and it is to the detriment of the wall performance. It's an approach that can best be summed up as, this is how I want the building to look, so how do we achieve the rest? If the aesthetic cannot be changed at a later date to suit any adjustments in the name of performance, then design teams should consider engaging in a greater level of technical design earlier in the process to achieve both together. Construction product innovations, especially in the insulation sector, can help to deliver better performance without substantially altering proposed build-ups. Depending on the scale of improvements, it may even be possible to reduce the thickness of a wall build-up. It is important to stress that specifications should always be project-specific, and they should be realistic. It's not unusual for an insulation manufacturer to be asked for a product that achieves the best possible performance across all of its technical characteristics. Such a product does not exist. In keeping with the theme of this section, the performance of an insulation product is balanced out by the physical characteristics of the material from which it is made. Unrealistic specifications occur because of unfamiliarity with products or because specifications have been copied from a previous project with a few details altered. If a building envelope is designed based on unrealistic performance characteristics and the discrepancy is not identified early enough, it creates confusion and a risk that the build-up will not perform. Relying on an insulation manufacturer to manufacture a product with unrealistic performance characteristics is not good practice. Even where new product innovations have been introduced, they should not be relied upon to compensate for overspecification in other areas of the building envelope design. The move away from lightweight, combustible insulation types to non-combustible mineral wool insulation types have been driven by fire safety. It is natural that manufacturers of non-combustible insulation are now seeking to offer better thermal conductivities in competition with one another. Any such gains that are realized, however, are incremental in the bigger picture. 
Typical non-combustible insulation materials will not achieve thermal conductivities, as low as the lightweight foam boards they are replacing in specifications. Thicker insulation layers are inevitable. New insulation innovations are part of the bigger picture of optimizing the whole wall buildup. It could be the case that any insulation thickness savings due to lower thermal conductivities may actually be negated in the push to achieve better U-values. If a specification is altered to accommodate insulation with a lower thermal conductivity, but the bracket type remains the same, the bracket has a slightly worse thermal bridging effect overall. The better insulation forces more heat energy to be lost via thermal bridges. Insulation options should therefore be looked at in combination with the available subframe system options, so their effect on one another can be understood. While design teams may be reluctant to seek it, the usefulness of early engagement cannot be underestimated. Combining the expertise of a subframe manufacturer and an insulation manufacturer can help to produce a joined-up picture of what the project is likely to require in terms of an approximate overall wall thickness. Ultimately, Product innovations might lead to very slightly better U-values, say an improvement of around 0.01 watts per meter square Kelvin. There is more to the specification than the headline U-value though. It may be possible to optimize the build-up in other ways, such as by being able to use a single layer of insulation rather than a double layer. Why do improvements and savings then become part of the conversation? Talking about savings inevitably brings us to the question of cost. A reason often given for not engaging in earlier technical design is that cost is the only driver. There's no point committing to a solution because it's expected that a contractor will seek a cheaper alternative. As mentioned earlier, however, early engagement aimed at optimizing the building envelope can deliver savings later on and therefore be of benefit to the contractor when they become involved. Longer-term value is the key. A solution can be cost-engineered, but it cannot necessarily be value-engineered. A system might be more expensive at face value early on, but is capable of delivering various benefits that make life easier for the contractor and the client. One such benefit is increasing the amount of lettable floor space. In our first white paper on rain screen thermal performance, we talked about how using conservative values for component performance might be seen as assuming the worst. In theory, the performance of the finished building can therefore only be better. As we have heard in this podcast, making assumptions, and conservative ones at that, risks leading to building envelope designs that cannot achieve the desired performance. The result of not optimizing the buildup is thicker walls and highly likely, worse than desirable thermal performance. Thicker walls cost more to construct and take up more of the building's footprint. On a highly constrained site, the only way to accommodate those thicker walls is to eat into the internal floor area. The amount of lettable area available therefore decreases, reducing income from building tenants. By contrast, an early optimized design can reduce the wall thickness, which costs less to construct, and it keeps the building footprint the same, creating more internal area that can be rented out. Optimization, therefore, has a benefit throughout the project program and beyond into the building's ultimate use. A rain screen subframe has a critical role to play in the optimization of a facade buildup, alongside the chosen insulation layer and cladding panels. By understanding the available subframe options and how they affect the thermal performance of the wall, 
it's possible to specify a building envelope that can provide the desired thermal, fire, and load-bearing performance. At the same time, it will also look how the architect envisaged the building would look, and it will provide the client with the best long-term value for their money. The best way to mitigate performance and cost issues is to engage in appropriate technical design in the earlier stages of a project. By not doing so, the building will be designed without the parameters of the facade slash cladding zone being set. Avoiding an early detailed specification typically creates more work for main and specialist contractors who price a project based on an outline specification only. Whether the priced system will achieve the actual performance is only checked at a much later stage when it might not be possible to accommodate the system that is actually required. Liability has always impacted on whether people are willing to accept responsibility for a specification decision, but the part it plays in that process has increased and continues to increase. Unfortunately, passing on liability for specification decisions tends to increase uncertainty, meaning decisions are made later rather than earlier. The message of this podcast is not that people should be forced to make decisions and accept liability. What we do encourage is the early engagement that gets other expertise involved. Often, that expertise comes from product manufacturers. Design teams might be wary of dealing with a single manufacturer or group of manufacturers from the outset. But working together to overcome those trust issues and putting the building blocks in place to deliver better performing buildings can reduce the impact of liability. Ultimately, it can help to ensure that the built environment delivers for its eventual users. Getting into the detail of facade design makes it a complex subject. That's why we've avoided doing so in this podcast. Unfortunately, that complexity is what tends to lead to design teams applying a single solution across multiple projects. It's easy to think that there's one repeatable solution that works, but that's not the case in practice. Throughout this podcast, we've referred to the need for balance in specifications. When there's no black and white answer, it means having to accept there are gray areas. And that's where balance is to be found. There's nothing wrong in aiming for the best in different areas of building envelope performance. It may not always be possible to achieve it, but it can still be possible to go beyond the minimum. Getting the right expertise involved at any early stage helps to navigate these gray areas. In particular, that can be through the use of digital tools designed to optimize elements of the facade specification. Bracket frequency can be determined so that it provides the required load-bearing capability while minimizing thermal bridging impact on the insulation layer, thereby ensuring that the insulation layer itself doesn't become overspecified. In this way, the rain screen subframe can help to improve the thermal performance of the wall, while actually reducing the insulation thickness the perfect example of optimization in practice.